Hi, Freshhead listeners. It's Will here. Happy 2018. I hope you're having an excellent start to the new year. The Freshhead team is taking a break this month from producing new episodes. Instead, we're busy working behind the scenes, getting ready for the new year. We have some great interviews in store for you starting in February. Until then, we'll play some of our favorite reruns for you. But if you have any requests for reruns, please contact me on Facebook or Twitter. Before I go, I wanted to invite you to take our audience survey. The survey will help us learn more about you, no matter how long you've been a listener or how frequently you listen to this show. So please take a few minutes and visit freshedpodcast.com slash survey. Again, that's freshedpodcast.com slash survey. You'll also find a link on our homepage. And of course, you can complete the survey anonymously. Thanks again, and enjoy the show. This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today on the show, social network analysis in educational research. Social network analysis shifts the focus from the individual to relationships between individuals. So our unit of analysis is no longer just the individual, it's really the relationship between individuals. My guest is Robin Shields. Robin is an associate professor at the University of Bath in the United Kingdom. His research broadly investigates the globalization of education, examining patterns of convergence and differentiation in educational policy and practice. He particularly focuses on the innovative application of research methods such as social network analysis and multi-level modeling to address key theoretical debates in the field. He has applied these methods to the study of international higher education and international development education. On today's show, we discuss some of his work looking at Twitter feeds of world-class universities. Robin Shields, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thanks, Will. I'm very happy to be on the show. You've done a lot of work on network analysis or social network analysis, um, and it's become pretty popular in educational studies of late. What is social network analysis in basic terms? Okay, well, well, in the most basic sense, you could say educational studies, and by extension, its related disciplines like sociology, have tried to understand education and society by understanding individuals as a unit of analysis. These individuals could be, you know, students, teachers, it could be institutions. But social network analysis shifts the focus from the individual to relationships between individuals. So our unit of analysis is no longer just the individual. It's really the relationship between individuals. Uh, that, so we're looking at a network, which is a set of relationships between individuals. And what this entails is a far greater level of complexity than you would find in uh, a lot of, you could say, actor-based studies. So on one hand, we have much larger and more complex data sets because as the size of our sample, as the group of individuals we're studying grows, the number of possible connections between them grows exponentially. So for instance, if you have a, a regular sized classroom of 30 students, you'd have over 400 possible relationships, friendships or collaboration relationships that could exist between the students. And we also have complexity in the way relationships work, kind of more like chaos theory 
type of complexity, meaning that small changes can have very big effects. So for example, if you take a classroom, if you increase just slightly the propensity or the likelihood for students to form relationships, like friendships or collaboration, then that could have a very big influence on how the overall network of the classroom looks. So small changes can have very big effects. So what sort of information could be found by looking at relationships rather than individuals? That's a good question. We could find, uh, you, you could look at, for instance, inequality is a relationship which you can see very well in network structures, which is much harder to find in individual relationships. Uh, centrality and power. So if you're trying to establish relationships of power in a given context, then it's quite hard to do that in actor-based research. You can kind of use proxy measures, but you can often see through ties, through relationships of the network, who are the most important people. You can look at flows of information. So how particular individuals might mediate flows of information between groups who are otherwise unconnected. So if you have one student who connects two other groups of students that otherwise have no connections between them, then you know that person is pretty important in terms of mediating any potential flows of information between the two groups. Hmm. So it seems like um, inequality and power and flows of knowledge, these are very kind of intangible, um, but they are the processes that make up the network, and that's what network analysis tries to understand. Yeah, I'd say so. But you're right that they're intangible and that it's very difficult to actually measure flows of information or flows of uh, knowledge. So we rely on proxy measures. Uh, we rely on things like, I don't know, citations is a common you know, link in a network. So who cites who? is kind of taken as a proxy that they regard their work as important or influential, or at least have read it. In my, net, in my study, I use uh, social network ties, so relationships and social network websites, as another proxy that two organizations know of each other, perhaps you know, respect each other, or are aware of each other's existence. In the 1990s, there was a, ter uh, a term, the network society. Is is the network analysis in educational research, is there a connection to this notion of the network society? Well, I think Manuel Castell's work on the network society is very seminal in shaping how people understand contemporary society and contemporary social organization. So there are a few free key concepts that he puts forward. The first is that society is kind of characterized by ties that form very rapidly and that are not centrally organized but are rather self-organized. So individuals form ties out of common self-interest and they're not really mediated by institutions. So that's an important uh, concept which translates very well to social network research. That networks are basically self-organizing and there's no kind of macroscopic power usually or a force organizing how networks are organized but they arise from kind of self-interest or uh, other types of relationships between actors. He also talks a lot about how networks, global networks are kind of deterritorialized. So space matters much less uh, because there's electronic media, so people can connect around the world very easily. So there are definitely some analogies, and especially this idea of borderless networks 
you hear a lot in contemporary higher education discourse. We talk about borderless higher education quite a bit. And there's often an assumption that universities around the world can interact with distance posing a very minimal barrier. However, it's also worth noting that social network analysis uh, predates Manuel Castell's work by several decades. So people were working on social network analysis in sociology, in organizational psychology for since the mid 20th century, really. So this idea of taking the relationship as a unit of analysis uh, does predate Manuel Castell's notion of the network society by several decades. So we will get to some of your works uh, in a bit that looks at world-class universities using a large data set of Twitter. But I, I, I'm just curious, can social network analyses be done both quantitatively and qualitatively? Yes, it's definitely possible to do both quantitative and qualitative social network analysis research. Um, I'm definitely more of an expert in quantitative social network analysis. And I do think probably that accounts for the majority of papers that are published on social network analysis nowadays. But I mean, a great source to check out if you're interested in qualitative approaches to social network analysis is some of Stephen Ball's more recent work, which he and he uses the term network ethnography to describe his kind of ethnographic approach to understanding relationships between large non-state, often corporate interests and how they shape educational policy. So he's using an ethnographic approach, but rather than uh, a traditional ethnography, I guess you could say, he's really interested on how these networks of power form and how they, uh, you know, understanding the links between organizations. I think it's also important to note that it's possible to do even not going into the qualitative and quantitative distinction, it's impossible, it's possible to do both inductive and deductive work in social network analysis. So a lot of social network analysis, even if it's quantitative, is actually exploratory in nature. Um, it's, it's exploring the network structure and trying to develop possible models about how the network might work. And finally, for qualitative researchers, it's often important to keep in mind the possibility of data transformation, by which I mean you may have a set of interviews with you know, 10 or 20 different individuals, it may be possible when you're coding your data to come up with ties between the individuals. So if you ask them, who do they look for for advice? Uh, you might be able to transform your qualitative data, in addition to using it as a qualitative data set, into a quantitative network where you look at who's mentioned who as a source of advice. And so you can kind of use a mixed method approach that way. Have you used um, such an approach in your work before? No, I never have. I think it would be great, though. Um, so hopefully we'll see more studies like that in the field soon. So let's focus in on this um, this purely quantitative side. And when I, when I read your work, I come across all sorts of terms like nodes and ties and reciprocity and neighborhoods. Could you give someone like me who doesn't know much about network analysis, you know, a quick overview of some of the conceptual vocabulary required to understand what it is that's going on in your analyses. Yeah, I can try. I mean, it's no substitute for even a brief primer on social network analysis. Um, I've recently published one in a handbook of higher education policy research that just introduced some of this vocabulary. And even if you look at the Wikipedia page on social network, for example, you can really quickly get up to speed. 
but but let's just you know to establish a basic kind of lexicon, we can say that we consider a network as a group of connected entities, right? And these could be individual people or organizations or even nation states. But we usually call these actors or nodes. So actors, I'll use the term actors uh, in this conversation. These are the groups, the, the individuals who are connected in the network. And they're connected by, we would say, ties or links, right? So a link is a bridge between two individuals, two actors, which is uh, usually either absent or present. So you can say that person A cites person B, and that link is either there, like person A does cite person B, or it's not there. They're not connected. And this would be the relationship that you talked about earlier. Yes, exactly. So the links or ties are the relationships between the actors. So if we have a set of actors and we have a set of ties between them, the first question we might ask about our network is how many ties are there? Is everyone in the network connected to everyone else? Uh, conversely, is almost no one connected to anyone else with their very sparse connections? And the term we use for this measure of how connected the network is, is the density of the network. So if the density is, this ranges from zero to one usually. So if the density is one, it means everybody's connected to everybody else. And if the no one's connected to anyone else, the density is zero. And of course, in real life networks, we find that the density falls somewhere in between these two bounds. So some ties are present, some aren't. And our interest is in why are the ties that are present there. I'll just introduce two more concepts that will be useful in our conversation. The next one is, the next thing we might look at is whether or not ties work in both directions. So if we have two actors called Mary and John, if Mary knows John, is it also the case that John knows Mary? And how often is it the case that ties work in both directions? So we call this property reciprocity. And we can measure reciprocity as the proportion of ties that work in two directions um, as a proportion of all the ties in the network. So if all the right. ties... So let me... Yeah, go ahead. I'll get just one example here is that Stephen Ball that we mentioned earlier, I know Stephen Ball through his work, but he surely does not know me. Yes. So that would be a one-directional sort of relationship, it's an me knowing him. Tie. Yeah, and so you often find that reciprocity is a good way to study power through asymmetries. Another example is, is if you know the social network uh, Twitter, which we'll talk about later, celebrities often have many thousands of followers, right? So, you know, mil actually millions of people follow celebrities, but they follow relatively few people themselves. So that's kind of... So it's sign. asymmetrical. Yeah, most of their ties are asymmetrical. That's kind of a sign of their influence. So we've established kind of nodes and ties or actors and ties and then reciprocity. The last thing I think is important to understand is looking at groups of connected actors. And the most basic way to do this is through the concept of transitivity, which is sometimes called clustering. Although I like to use the term the friend of a friend characteristics of a network. So if we say we use Mary and John as an example, if Mary knows John and Mary also knows someone called Sue, how often is it the case that John also knows Sue? So there's mutual friendships uh, in operation in the network. And that's another property of the, the network that we can measure. Levels of you know, high transitivity or high clustering are often called small world networks because it feels like a small world. So when John meets Sue, he says, oh, you also know Mary, what a small world. You know, we have all these connections in common. 
So those are a few basic terms. You've got your actors, you've got your ties, reciprocity, and then uh, transitivity. But that's a way to start to understand the network and start to discuss the structure. What sort of, so reciprocity uh, or asymmetry tells us a little bit about power in a, rela- in a network. Uh-huh. What does transitivity tell us? If, if, we, if we have a small world network where everyone knows yeah. everyone else and the third person also knows the other yeah. two, what, what sort of, um, what does this tell us about a network? It tells us, well, it, it all, it depends on the context to some extent, but, but in most contexts, it, it would say that uh, there's a very good flow of information. So there's, you know, many paths through which information could travel, through which, uh, you know, if people are citing one another, they'll be very familiar with the same set of work. If they're spreading rumors, then the rumors would spread very quickly uh, and efficiently. So there's not really key individuals who mediate the connections between uh, the rest of the network. I guess the, f- the flip side to this is centralization, which is the extent to which the network has kind of a core periphery structure. So if there's one person, let's say Mary knows everyone in the network, but no one else knows anyone else, right? So all the information flows through Mary then she can mediate how information flows. She can stop information she doesn't want from flowing around. So that's a very central network, and that's kind of the centralized network. We could say that's kind of the opposite of a small world. Right, and usually in in, in terms of citations in academic work, there's it's somewhere in the middle. There's some people that have a lot of power because, or centrality, I guess the word is, because they are, everyone is citing them, but everyone else isn't necessarily citing each other yeah that's right but at least we're all those of us who aren't the mega superstars we're all citing each other a bit so there's some flow of information. right exactly right so it's kind of in the middle somewhere. yeah yeah and i think that's important i mean that's a good point about social networks in general is they're only meaningful if they're somewhere in the middle like if, if everyone cites everyone else or no one cites anyone else then there's nothing to study so we need to kind of we need things to be in the middle in the balance and that's where it gets interesting and then you need you know you can use this um analysis to then develop particular theories to explain why it's in the middle or not in the yeah middle. exactly yeah so let's turn to some of you know your own work um you have done uh some work lately um using twitter now tell us about this work and why twitter became so such a powerful source of data okay i mean that's a really good question i find twitter data uh very interesting it's a great source of data i think for people doing either quantitative or qualitative research and i'm going to use the answer that mountain climbers often use to describe why they climb a mountain because it's there uh, we've got the many people don't know this but twitter most twitter data is by default public so unless you choose to make your Twitter account private, who you follow, what you tweet is public. And not only is it public, but it can be downloaded quite easily through software. Twitter provides kind of an interface for software to download uh, Twitter data. So it's very easy to get a very complex data set, a uh, very large data set potentially, that would otherwise take you weeks or months or maybe even years to assemble. So I was interested in how universities relate to one another in kind of a public sphere. 
there's a lot of bibliometric data about you know who cites who, but I thought it would be interesting to see in a public sphere how do universities relate to one another, kind of in public discourse, you could say. And so Twitter data seemed like the ideal way to start to look into this. Before we jump into the data, why did you think it would be interesting to look at how universities relate to each other in the public sphere? Yeah. Well, I was trying to understand, I think, the way that uh, status and particularly rankings of universities organize relationships between them. And I had found a lot of literature that raised expectations, kind of, uh, that status and ranking were very, very important, and that uh, these really organized relationships between universities. I'd even talked to managers who talk about strategically how they approach universities with different rankings and different statuses, how they first establish a link with a friend of a friend if they want to make a relation, you know, a key relationship. They make relationships with mutual friends. And so I saw, I saw kind of a lot of, you could say, network-based behavior, people unconsciously applying these concepts of social network analysis. And I have to say, I, my expectation going into the study was really that uh, we would see in social network, in social media data, relationships of uh, power that kind of fell along the lines of, of rankings and status of universities. So in your, what were some of the findings, I guess, in your study, looking at these world-class universities and, and, and ranking and, and status through a lot of Twitter data? Yeah, so I just briefly touch on the data that I collected, and sure. then I'll show you what I found. So I, I gathered data on, I took the top 200 universities in the world as uh, kind of measured in four global rankings. So any university that appeared in two of the four was in my sample. And then I found the central Twitter account for these universities. Usually it just has the name of the university. Um, and then I looked at how they were connected to one another. And I was interested to see, are the higher ranked universities more central? Uh, are they less likely to reciprocate ties to lower-ranked universities? And what I found is there is some effect of ranking. So uh, higher-ranked institutions are much are more likely to be followed than lower-ranked institutions. But actually, the size of this effect, you could say, is, is quite minimal. And other factors, such as geography, so being in the same location, being in the same geographic region, were more important. And even more important than that were the existing relationships within the network. So if there's a friend of a friend, you know, if there's a mutual connection between universities, that made them much more likely to follow each other on Twitter than anything like rankings or location. Hmm. So and so to make this abstract or generalization, like Harvard would be this high-ranking university or Oxford. Yes. And they would be more likely, or, or geography, where they're based in, say, Massachusetts or Oxford, England, mm -hmm. makes them, would is a, a better predictor of um, the relationships they form on Twitter rather than them connecting to other high-ranking universities like Harvard to Princeton or Oxford to Cambridge. Yeah. That's, that's very well put. So they, Oxford would be, I mean, there is some effect of ranking, so they might be more likely to make ties with, you know, Stanford and Cambridge and all of that. 
but being in the same nation state, so Cambridge would be a very likely tie with Oxford. Another high-ranked institution which is very far away would be much less probable. I, I don't know. Uh, University of Tokyo might be an example there. You know, the distance would decrease the probability of a tie quite a bit. But the most important thing would actually be whether or not University of Tokyo followed Oxford. And, and if they did, then the reciprocal tie would be very likely. So all of this um, data and this analysis that you've done, um, so what does it tell us about rankings and status um, for world-class universities? That's a good question. I think uh, what it shows is that it's possible to overstate the importance of rankings when we look at how universities actually interact with one another. And a lot of the emphasis on rankings, the great importance which is attached to it, may be kind of talked into being. So people have seen these new rankings, that they've you know seen that they're important to managers and such, and so they've assumed that they organize the field of universities, if you like. And I think there's, a, there's perhaps a tendency to overstate that. Now, do you think we could have or you could have uncovered this same finding using actor center research, looking at individuals rather than the relationships between individuals. So I could have perhaps done a survey with universities. So I could have sent a survey to th these 200 universities and said, you know, how important is ranking to your, the relationships you form? And I would have got back a bunch of uh, responses and then I could have said, well, their mean response was, was such and such. It would have provided a another way to, to answer the question, but I don't think it would have been as empirically accurate, I suppose, because it would have been their own self-assessment, whereas I've looked at who they actually form relationships with. So I guess the advantage of the network approach is that I actually have data on how they connect to one another rather than their own assessment of how they connect to one another. Right, it's less subjective. Yeah, because the ties are kind of tangible. They're very right. concrete. Right. So you in, you also use this um, approach called the exponential random graph models to explain the probability uh, of an observed network uh, as a function of both uh, endogenous and exogenous variables. Now, what do you can you explain this to someone like myself who doesn't know much about social network analysis? Yeah, I can do my best. And I got to say the term exponential random graph models is enough to turn off anyone who doesn't like <laughs> statistics because it's such a mouthful. But this is a really important method in social network analysis. I think it will become more important in education research in coming years. If you look at journals that comparative education is often drawn upon, like American Journal of Sociology, there have been a few ERGM papers published dating back to about 2010. So I think we may find more in education research soon. But to put it in basic, very basic terms, what we are trying to do with an ERGM is to explain the overall network structure, the big picture, through local selection forces, the propensity of individuals to form ties with one another. And as you said, we kind of disaggregate that in between to endogenous and exogenous forces. So let's say we're talking about two actors, John and Mary, and whether John cites Mary. So some of the things we might look at are exogenous to the network. Okay, they're outside of our network. So 
are John and Mary in the same department or working at the same university? That may increase the propensity for John to cite Mary. Do they attend the same conferences? Are they in the same field? Do they have an office on the same floor? Right? These are all uh, characteristics of John and Mary which are outside the network and may relate, uh, may influence the probability for John to cite Mary. Conversely, we could look at things which are in the net, you know, we could look at other ties in the network to try to explain whether or not John might cite Mary. So is Mary the most highly cited person in her field? Is she the Stephen Ball of her field? If so, John might be more likely to cite Mary. Uh, did they have, let's see, do they have common ties? So do they cite a lot of other literature in common? That's transitivity, right? There's a friend of a friend effect there. So John may be more likely to cite Mary if they're already citing a lot of the same literature. And if we have enough data, what we can do is disaggregate these endogenous and exogenous forces. So we can say uh, the you know, effect of reciprocity, independent of all these other variables, endogenous and exogenous, is estimated to be you know, such and such a number, and we can test whether or not that's likely to be different from zero. So do we have confidence? Is there a significance to that effect of reciprocity? So how did you use this modeling uh, in your research using Twitter? So what I looked at was the probability of an, a university following another university on Twitter. And I looked at some endogenous variables, so structures of the network. I looked at whether or not the tie was reciprocal, how would that influence tie formation, and I looked at transitivity, whether or not there were third parties that kind of uh, were friends of friends between the two universities. And then I looked at a lot of exogenous variables. So I looked at ranking, that was kind of the key variable I wanted to test. But I also looked at geographic variables, so the distance between universities and whether or not they were in the same country and whether or not they were in English-speaking countries were all variables that I used to uh, you know, further control the analysis and kind of explore this idea of the borderless university. Yeah, and so what I found is that the, the effect uh, of ranking was significant, so we could say it's meaningful, it's different from zero, but it's really not very large. It's not as large as the effect of distance, and it's not as large as the effect of the, effect of the endogenous uh, variables. Right. So the factors outside of the network are more meaningful than the rankings and the ties that exist within the network. Well, the ties that exist within the network are actually the most influential. So the biggest predictor of the network structure is the rest of the network, which sounds kind of odd, but, but that's the most likely thing to influence a tie formation based on my data. But after that, the uh, exogenous factors that are not ranking were more important than ranking. Right, okay. So in comparative education, how else might researchers utilize this approach that you've used looking at Twitter data and trying to explain um, the effect of rankings on prestige and status? Uh, you know, there's so many possibilities for this. I wish I had time to kind of <laughs> well, to explore what them are your, where, where are you going? What are the directions you're moving in? Well, I'll give you a few kind of ideas I have that I, I know other people in the field are working on. Um, but I think the possibilities are, are almost endless. So 
A good one, I think a good example would be inter-organizational relationships, looking at how organizations like the World Bank, uh, different branches of UNESCO, use Twitter, who they follow, who they mention, would be a very interesting you know, way to use very similar approaches. There's no exact, uh, there's, there's no ranking in that sense, but you can look at whether or not multilaterals follow bilaterals. Uh, you might look at kind of north to south relationships. So you could look at ministries of education in the World Bank and how they, uh, you know, how national agencies relate to international organizations. That would be really interesting. Aid to education would be a great uh, network analysis. There's great data from the OECD on uh, which countries and which donors fund which other countries. And that would be a really interesting network to study in more depth. Uh, bibliometric analyses. I, I know these are going on already. People are working on bibliometric analyses of key policy documents, seeing who these documents cite and who the cited documents cite. They're kind of snowballing their sample. And even a little bit of critical self-reflection on the field. So looking at who cites who in comparative education. What are kind of the cliques? What are the neighborhoods, the different groups of actors in comparative education? Well, we really look forward to, to your future papers using network analysis. I think they're, they're just really fascinating, and, and you're such a clear writer, and, and you make these very complex ideas and statistical methods quite easy to follow and understand, um, and it's very persuasive. So thank you very much for joining Fresh Ed Robin Shields, and, and we look forward to speaking with you again. Thanks, Phil. It was a pleasure. Robin Shields is an associate professor at the University of Bath. His research discussed in this podcast can be found in the February 2016 issue of Higher Education. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, and Hong Zhong. Aggie Hu is Fresh Ed's social media coordinator, and original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Priming. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you next week.